Hello, I'm Graham Smith, and welcome to the Abolish the Monarchy podcast, brought to you by Republic. And don't forget, if you want to find out more about the issues or Republic, head over to republic.org.uk, where you can also join, donate, or get involved. Your membership subscription will help Republic do more campaigning and produce more podcasts and YouTube content. So if you're not already a member, please do head over to the site and join today. Now, Republic is a broad church drawing supporters from across the political and social spectrum, and we have supporters from all faiths and none, including many members of the Church of England who agree with Republic's view that church and state should be separate. For us, a Republic has to be secular, guaranteeing equality of belief and an end to religious privilege. Of course, ending the nonsense of the head of state being head of the church and also removing bishops from the House of Lords. So on this programme, I am talking to Stephen Evans of the National Secular Society about secularism, what it is, how religious privilege plays out in British politics, and the relationship between republicanism and secularism. Stephen, hi, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, thanks for having me. And I mean, let's just clear this up. I mean, what, what is secularism for you? I mean, what's, particularly in terms of the constitution and the way that we're governed, I mean, what does it, what's the primary goal of the National Secular Society? Okay, well, the primary goal, I suppose, is disestablishment of the Church of England, but there's a lot of stuff around that too. So secularism for me is basically the idea that state institutions should be separate from religious ones, uh, that freedom of belief and thought and practice should be an automatic right for all citizens, um, at least up to the point where that begins to interfere with the rights of others, and that the state shouldn't discriminate against people on grounds of their religious or their non-religious worldview. Um, so I, I suppose it's fundamentally about maximizing freedom and ensuring fairness um, for everyone. Um, you know, lots of organizations and identity groups campaign for their religious freedom. Um, but I'd like to think at the NSS, we, we sort of campaign for everyone's rights to be balanced fairly. And that for me is really the essence of secularism. And I mean, what is the impact of the Church of England being a state church and, and the, the, there being a lack of this separation. I mean, did it, I guess some people might think that it's just a bit of a harmless relic of a bygone age, but I mean, it, it, is there an actual discernible impact that affects other people's lives? Well, sure. I mean, as you say, the UK isn't a secular state. We remain largely a, um, well, certainly legally, we're a Christian state. Um, which is both anachronistic and it's simply unsustainable. Um, I think we are quite secular in our outlook as a nation. I think we have a very secular outlook. We're one of the most uh, non-religious countries in the world too, but our institutions are just simply lagging behind somewhat. So we have this kind of outmoded, outdated religious privilege going on in society that doesn't really make a lot of sense anymore. So, for example, we still have taxpayer-funded religious schools, uh, which leads to quite a divisive and at times discriminatory school system. Um, we still have schools that are required by law to hold acts of worship. Uh, the Church of England has a unique privileged political representation. Uh, its bishops, 26 leading Church of England bishops, sit in the House of Lords, enabling them to vote and, and influence debates and have the you know the kind of access to ministers that the rest of us can only dream of. It's not just about... Um, the, the seats in the House of Lords and the votes. It's about this access to power. You know, they walk the corridors of power. I'm in there. Mm. I'm, in, I'm, I'm in Parliament from time to time. And 
you know, not a time goes by where I don't see bishops, um, you know, having access to ministers, having meetings in Parliament. You know, they're a very political beast, the Church of England, mm. and this um, automatic kind of represent political representation that they have in the Lords, I think, is quite far-reaching in many ways. Um, uh, you know, and we also have our national ceremonies have a distinctly religious feel, which I think, um, in particularly in a nation, as I said, which is, I think, characterised by indifference to religion more than anything else, I think that undermines our civic ceremonies. And I think it makes them feel a little bit less inclusive. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, thanks to the C of E's established status, I think all religions have perhaps greater influence over public policy than they should. I think the Church of England very much kind of holds the door open for the other religions to have an elevated status within within our, um, uh, our state and within our policymaking too. And the House of Lords, as you mentioned, is the kind of the, the seat of their political power, as it were. Um, and there has been discussion of reform of the House of Lords sort of going the wrong way, and I, I, I imagine you would agree, in terms of actually allowing other religions to be represented in the households rather than removing the bishops well yeah this is certainly certainly the uh, the church of england's preferred way of reforming the house of lords <laughs> unsurprisingly yeah. um so yeah the, 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 and this this is kind of important really because this is it's this multi-faithism that i think mm. we have in the uk so instead of secularism we appear to be going down the route of okay acknowledging that it's inappropriate for the church of england to be so influential influential within the state but instead of just um, rolling back the church of england's privileges uh, for some people it's about extending those privileges to other belief groups so the mm. idea is that the house of lords instead of just having Anglican bishops would have um, imams and rabbis and whatnot and the rest of it and you know maybe even a humanist representative too but uh, it's very hard to understand to, to be clear about who exactly is qualified to speak for uh, Muslims for example yeah um, you know lots of Christians wouldn't agree that um, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury represents them particularly well so you know it's 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 not a very clean solution it's not a very ideal solution it completely ignores the um the vast ways of the population that are just indifferent to religion um mm. it leaves them even more disenfranchised so i think yeah a big part of what the national secular society is trying to achieve is this um move towards secularism rather than multi-faithism which I, I i don't think is the answer to any of the problems that we have around the the church's privileges and in the lords i i mean i once had a couple of Australian friends over in London. They were visiting, and I took one of them into the Parliament as a tour. Uh, to see, it wasn't, a, you know, it's just open. The two houses were both sitting, and we we spent a few minutes in the public gallery of the Commons, and then we went over to the public gallery of the Lords. And on the screen, it said that they were currently debating the role of women in society. And I looked down, and there was a bishop in all his. Uh, fine gowns or whatever they call them uh talking on this subject and this was before they even allowed women to be bishops and i was slightly embarrassed for my, <laughs> for my country to see this man uh talking on this subject in our parliament and i guess it it kind of worries me the degree to which they have uh, an undue influence on legislation itself because the lords does impact on on legislation i mean do you think it's actually having a real impact on on government decisions and government policy Yes, absolutely. I think the, the the elevated privileged position that the Church of England has 
absolutely influences policy. I don't think we would, if we didn't have Church of England schools, for example, I think it's very unlikely now that we would have Islamic schools or Sikh schools. Mm. I, I just think it's it's because you know a decision was made some time ago that um, uh, to extend faith schools to other faiths. So you could have gone down the route of saying, listen, uh, you know, in a, in a modern kind of pluralistic, uh, largely uh, secular country in its outlook, at least, it's not really appropriate to have um, faith schools anymore. But instead, because of the Church of England's significant influence, it was decided, well, we can't get rid of church schools. So what we'll do is just level it out by having Islamic schools and Sikh schools and Jewish schools and whatnot. And, you know, that's, as I said, led to quite a divisive education system. So I think in that way, the Church of England sort of um, uh, accommodates or kind of uh, um, results in this multi-faith approach, which I don't think is the best approach going forward. So absolutely, I think they they have a significant impact in all areas of public policy. And it's not just the votes in the House of Lords, as I say, it's the access to ministers. When a Church of England bishop writes to a minister, they expect a response within a week. You know, there's this deference to the Church of England that exists throughout all uh, government departments, I think, that we see. And um, yeah, there's all sorts of areas where, where it has an impact. And obviously, the, one of the sort of cornerstones of this setup, which I, I think helps to protect the established church, is the fact that the head of the church is also the head of state in the Queen. I mean, how do you see that relationship? Is that problematic for you? I mean, do you find people arguing about the whole setup as being this sort of monarchical religious framework? Or, I mean, how do you separate those two things out? Well, it is hard to separate because they really are all part and parcel of the same thing. So uh, as your listeners will know, the British monarch also holds the title of Defender of the Faith Mm. uh, and the Supreme Governor of the Church of England. So this all serves to prop up the establishment and reinforces the privileged position of the Church of England. Um, And then there's this idea that the monarch derives their authority from God. So you know, no need for any elections or anything like that, because the monarchy is is chosen by God. And that, that you know, this absurd kind of divine right of kings sort of thing shouldn't have any place in a modern political settlement. So what we have now as well is a bizarre situation within our current settlement that if a future monarch decides that they uh, are no longer a Protestant Christian, they can't be the monarch. You know, so we've got a really discriminatory in, uh, s- uh, situation that's incompatible with the right to freedom of belief. Uh, for me, I think if we do have a monarch um, or any future head of state, they should be free to follow any faith they want or none. But, you know, unless we're some kind of theocracy, it shouldn't be the head of state's role to defend the faith. Um, but having said all that, Having said all of that, we don't actively campaign for abolition of the monarchy. Uh, our members will have varying positions on that particular question. But it's certainly hard to envisage a monarchy surviving under a secular state where religious privilege is removed. Um, it hasn't always been that way. Uh, republicanism has always been, if not in the foreground, then certainly in the background of the NSS and the secularist movement. We were born out of the uh, Victorian radical movement and the NSS and its founder, Charles Bradlaugh, were proponents of democratic reform, which included republicanism. Bradlaugh was a staunch atheist and a very active republican who, um, he actually took the pseudonym of iconoclast because, you know, he set his sights on the twin pillars 
of Victorian Britain, the church and the monarchy. He certainly mm. didn't see them as two really separate and distinct entities, and, and they really aren't. Um, since those times, the NSS, we, we've sort of sharpened our focus somewhat to set our sights yeah. solely on secularism. Um, so as far as we're concerned, a head of state, be they a monarch or not, they shouldn't promote their religious preferences, and they certainly shouldn't be under any sort of formal obligation to sustain a particular religious faith. So we'd certainly want to see an end to the ties between our head of state and the Church of England. Which I think would be challenging. I mean, I think what I, one, one argument I've, certainly how I feel about it, is that a, a state that has a monarchy, because monarchy is by its nature quasi-religious, is not secular. Um, but I suppose if everything else... I think it was Sweden that disestablished its church some years ago. I don't know exactly how that works. I don't know whether you're familiar with what they did. Yes, we have disestablished, and Wales disestablished the church as well. I mean, there yeah. are precedents for this. It's perfectly possible to do it. It's just, um, and you'll hear lots of people say these things, oh, it's too hard, it can't be done. But actually, it can be done. I mean, we were told for years that removing the bishops from the House of Lords, it would be a very, very difficult process. Um, but, you know, we, we, we hired a constitutional lawyer to come up with a bill. Yeah. I think it took him all of three or four hours. And we've actually presented that bill in mm. the House of Lords this year through... Uh, one of our associates, Lord Lord Dick Tavern. Yep. Um, you know, it, it's actually quite simple. You just need the will to do it. If you've got the political will to do it, then it's actually quite straightforward. Yep. But as you say, I don't want to um, undermine how difficult it is politically to do these things. But technically, it, it's actually not that hard to untangle church and state. But uh, as I think you were alluding to, the, to get the political will to do that is quite difficult because... There's lots of people out there that um, do quite well out of the establishment and will defend their interests quite energetically. Indeed. And, I mean, this is an interesting point. You mentioned Wales, and, of course, Scotland has a slightly sort of different relationship with the church and with the monarchy. And it, it's curious. I mean, obviously, you know, most, I think 85% of the UK population is in England, and England certainly dominates the UK national debate and we often forget that if you live in Wales and Scotland you don't have this established church in the same way that we do here so I mean how does that play out I mean do, do they have I mean what is the situation in Scotland because I get a little bit confused by this because I I believe the church, the queen actually changes her religion when she goes there <laughs> um <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure if that's the case, um, but the situation in Scotland is that the, well, certainly the, the Church of Scotland isn't established by law, but it certainly is privileged by law. Right. Um, in Wales, it's just the case that the, the, the church was disestablished. Um, Ireland are actually celebrating the 150th, I think, anniversary this year of their disestablishment. And actually, it's interesting to see the difference in attitudes there, because the church are celebrating disestablishment as... Mm some great liberating part of its history that mm. it's, it's certainly there it's certainly not to be mourned it wasn't a loss it was um it was something that actually gave them the freedom to go out and stand on their own two feet mm. and just be who they whoever they want to be so it's, it's sort of they see it as a sort of liberation i'm not sure they saw it that way at the time but <laughs> certainly 150 years down the line yeah. uh, that you know they took to disestablishment like ducks to water and they actually think it's been a positive influence on the church which is very different to the approach you get from the church of england which is um, seems to be quite fearful. Lots of people think disestablishment is something that's done to the church as some sort of punishment. Um, but I, I don't see it that way at all. I think lots of Ang Anglicans have a lot to gain from the church yeah. 
becoming disestablished. I think it would give it a new lease of life. You know, I'm not here to argue for disestablishment from the Church of England's perspective, but uh, but nevertheless, I, I do think everybody wins with a disestablished church. The church would gain its freedom um, and independence, and the state would, you know, similarly be you know, free from the ties that bind it to the church. And that's an interesting point because I know that I mean we've got quite a few reverends in our membership and on our supporter list, and uh, I've spoken to some of them before that are very keen for their church, the Church of England, to disestablish. I think some for a number of reasons. I think partly there's a philosophical view that it's a little bit uh, unseemly to be t- bound to the uh, to the state, which is you know not. Um, concerned with religious matters, but is concerned with much more, uh, well, grubbier matters. If I can, if I can put it that. So um, yeah, it's interesting, and I, I do think that there's an argument that it, the church would. Uh, well, I think the church would be fine if it wasn't um, uh, established. But so I mean, in terms of so we talked about schools and ceremonies and things. I mean, is that different in Wales, for example, where there's no established or no preferenced church is the church not quite so um prominent in in public life well you have to remember that a lot of the legislation in wales is actually um actually covers england and wales so i'd say the the influence of the church of england is still very much present in wales um but yet there, there are differences uh one that springs to mind at the moment is, for example, the Welsh government are trying, re- trying to reform religious education in Wales. And, you know, we've been very much involved in that process of reforming religious education away from the old model of kind of a confessional version, versus, uh, version of religious education to a much more pluralistic and diverse um, education about religion, values and ethics that covers a plurality of beliefs and include non-religious worldviews. So that's the way, if you're going to do any sort of religious education in schools, that's the way it should be done. And we just find in without the Church of England involved, the process is somewhat simpler in Wales. We've still got the Catholic Education Service involved, which is actually making it uh, more difficult than it should be um, because they're defending their vested interests. But nevertheless, you do find that without this sort of deference towards the church, uh, policymakers in Wales are much more open minded to change and uh, a lot less defensive about um, you know, changing the current system. And that's something we just don't see, for example, from the Department for Education in England. Mm. And on a slightly more trivial note, although it's not entirely trivial, there's a, a sort of pervasiveness of Church of England practices throughout our institutions. And one of the, I mean, the obvious one is prayers before Parliament. And also, I believe a lot of councils, if not all of them, still do prayers before they start i mean is that something which you've campaigned on and tried to stop uh certainly yeah we 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 certainly worked with um councillors who felt alienated alienated and excluded by the presence of prayers in council chambers um you know they've argued and we've argued alongside them that it's really not conducive to democracy that local authorities are seen to be some sort of club for Christians and that if you're not Christian then you're somehow um, uh, I don't know less involved less included mm. um, so I think it sends quite a negative signal to people about the nature of our institutions when it looks like some sort of kind of cozy club for Christians so we've certainly challenged um, uh, council prayers we challenged it on the high court and actually won 
Uh, mm. the, the the court found that having prayers was not something local authorities could lawfully do. Um, but then uh, Eric Pickles, uh, who was then the minister for communities and himself an evangelical Christian, actually brought in a law specifically to al- allow local authorities to pray. So that's the sort of thing we're up against, even when we, you know, uh, a very reasonable, rational decision is made that really it's not the business of local authorities to be holding prayers. Um, we, we, you know, we've got government ministers who certainly serving their own interests. He yep. was an evangelical Christian and certainly plain to the conservative base, um, you know, brought in a law to overturn that. So that's the sort of thing we're up against. But certainly prayers in Parliament too, I mean, it's just a ridiculous, it, it kind of works as a as an antiquated seat reservation system in the House, <laughs> in the house of Commons because there aren't yep. enough seats for MPs. So if you get in there early for prayers, then you get a seat. So it's ridiculous, it's discriminatory. And, you know, we've challenged all of these things and the... The procedures committee in the House of Commons have actually undertaken to look at this when they when they get a moment. <laughs> um, but you know we're not holding our breath. These things are very difficult to change. Um, just like yourself, yeah. we are up against um, quite a powerful um, form of social conservatism mm. that really thinks tradition is more important than anything else. And so when you're up against that, it's you know it's 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 quite a hard slog. And um, I mean, have have councils sort of abandoned this? I mean, one one point I think I mean I seem to remember some of the arguments. It's almost like a personal affront. It's like why shouldn't people be able to pray? It's like well, no one's saying they can't pray, but they're using council resources and council time to do it, and that, as you said, makes other people that are councillors or involved in the council or just, in, or just members of the local community feel excluded. But have, when this decision was made in the High Court, did some councils take the opportunity not to carry on with it? Yes, certainly the last research that we did, the vast majority of councils have now just moved away from this practice. So some might have um, prayers in a separate room uh, mm. five minutes before. So, there might, you know, lots of councils, I think, even if they do hold some sort of formal worship, they do it before the official business. So, yes, I think there's a shift away from that. Lots of councils kind of agree with us that it's probably not the best thing to be doing. Certainly, if they want to make um, uh, local democracies inclusive and as um, alluring as possible to as many sections of society as possible, yep. it's certainly inimical to that if you're holding christian prayers at the start of formal business it just looks a bit odd particularly if you look at the religious demographics where we're going britain is uh, at the same time one of the most non-religious countries in the world with probably a majority now most surveys show a majority of people being non-religious but also we've got religious plurality as well we've got a real kind of growing religious diversity in britain so the idea that any uh, institution, any formal body, uh, any government, any head of state, any council should subscribe to one particular set of beliefs. It's just, um, it, it, it's just, it, it's antiquated, it's anachronistic, and it's it's unhelpful, I think, for democracy. Yeah. A bit of a side note. I mean, I, um, I don't know whether you know about uh, the Isle of Man, but I went there back at the beginning of the year to, um, to give a talk, and I uh, visited their parliament and discovered that they have one bishop in their parliament uh, as part of the established <laughs> church uh, has that ever been an issue that's come up yeah we, we, well we, we quite often use the line that um, the UK is the only legislature in the world to have or to give clerics automatic rights to seats 
and uh, apart from Iran. Um, yep. But then someone always pops up on Twitter and says, well, what about the Isle of Man? So I admit it has been a blind spot uh, at yeah. times. So, yeah, do yeah. forgive us if we forget to mention the Isle of Man. But I do understand a similar situation uh, persists there, too. And it's all part of the same setup, of course, because the, you know, the, que- the Queen is their head of state, as it were. And it's not as a crown dependency um, yes. and so on. So it's a little bit complicated, but... Um, fascinating history in their parliament anyway and i definitely recommend that people to go there um but going back to the influence i mean one of the concerns in the past i think and i don't know whether this is still the case is that sort of public attitudes move on people call for reforms in social policy whether it's gay marriage or abortion or whatever and the church is a long way behind on those movements of attitude and still has this influence. And I mean, do you see a, 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 a sort of a dragging effect where it's, it's holding up or intervening in a way that means that our reforms are not reflecting the, the majority opinion in the country? Yes, I think one example of that that's, that's very current is the um, uh, attempts to reform the laws around assisted dying. So... It's, I, I think, in excess of 85% of the population thinks there should be some reform in this area. Um, nevertheless, Parliament is dragging its heels. Uh, the courts have decided that this really isn't a matter for them. It's a matter for Parliament. But Parliament just, it seems to be going nowhere in Parliament at the moment. And I think a lot of the reason for that is this idea that God gives life and takes it away um, not, 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 not anyone else, and so it's. Um, it, I, I think a lot of the arguments around assisted dying now are voiced in fairly secular language. So it's no longer good enough for the church to say this is against our religion, um, this is against God's will. We can't do this. So they don't do that. So they're a little bit more clever now. Um, and this is, I suppose, what we'd want them to do. We'd want there to frame their arguments in a language we can all understand. But yeah. what I think the the downside of that is is that some of the arguments against assisted dying, some of the fears around the pressure that would be put on relatives and whatever, um, I think they're giving um, undue uh, support. I think even where the evidence doesn't suggest their legitimate concerns, people will still cling to them because I I think if you scratch beneath the surface, what's behind those concerns is actually a theological objection. So it's very difficult to move the debate forward when people are saying well this is my concern when actually it's just a front for something else and that something else is religious objections and i think that's where we are with assisted dying i think Mm. it's um it's something that is clearly due for reform we should certainly have a review of the laws around assisted dying but that's one example perhaps where the um the powerful influence of the church and religion more generally over public policy is perhaps meaning the Lord is dragging its heels and, and, and not following public, um, 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 you know, the public support that assisted dying, for example, clearly has. Yeah. And where, I mean, looking forward, um, I mean, for a start, where's public opinion on the question of established church? I mean, is there... A strong opinion are people are sort of aware that that is an issue to be discussed and have an opinion on and and what is the the polling i think we have similar um i think the republican movement and the secularist movement probably have a similar challenge in many ways that a lot of the things that we campaign for probably aren't top of other people's 
uh, mm. political agenda, and I don't think uh, constitutional reform is particularly politi- politically salient in the UK. Mm. So that's 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 you know getting people to care about these issues is one of the challenges that I think we both face as an organisation. Mm. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean the polling is I, I, largely people don't really care. There's great levels of disinterest about the Church of England in the UK. Yes, but uh, I, I don't think there's any groundswell of public opinion for disestablishment um so that's yeah that, that but uh, similarly is i think most people if push would say yeah obviously that doesn't make sense anymore whether it's mm. uh, whether we should have a uh, a monarchy going forward or or disestablishment of the church of england i think if you lay the arguments before people they would tend to come down on the side of yes yep. probably best that we separate church and state but it, it's not the top of anyone's priority list at the moment <laughs> And I suppose with the, with the monarchy, people are very aware of it, and that it's there. I suppose is there a lack of awareness that the church is established? I mean, that, that, or that there has any that it makes any difference? Um, yeah, it, it seems to me that people aren't necessarily uh, aware of the situation until it hits them. So, for example, a lot of people who come to the National Secular Society, the first time we hear from them is when it's time to get their children into schools. Um, they suddenly realise, oh, I, I, I can't get my child into the local school because the vicar won't sign the certificate to say I've been attending church. And that's, you know, that horrifies people. So until you have some sort of um, um, interaction with religious privilege, then you might not necessarily know it's there, but it is there. It's all around us. Um, but yeah, I think until you actually, uh, unfortunately, this is the way it goes until things affect people personally, they tend not to engage with the debates. But I think that's a shame. Um, I think that's a shame because I, I don't think things have to affect you personally for you to, to, to have a say. This is about, um, principle. Um, yes. you know, you might think these are kind of lofty ideals that don't really, uh, matter in the everyday. But as I say, um, sometimes, um, people living their lives day to day don't notice the problems mm. of privilege until it hits them um, and then they get it yeah. um, but until they personally feel that injustice it's hard to get it on top of yeah. their priorities but of course it is impacting on other people and I think I guess maybe there's there's at some point in the future there will be a, a groundswell when people are much more aware of what that impact is and I guess you know the education thing is quite serious and quite important for for parents who are trying to get their kids into school i think it's, it's pretty appalling that the, the religion comes into that <laughs> at all you know but well, it's also um, it just undermines the fundamental principle of equality we've got the equality yeah. act we were celebrating 10 right. years yeah. since the anniversary of the equality act but uh, we released a port report last week that shows the huge gaps in the equality act around education so it just undermines our commitment as a country to equality mm. if mm. we actually allow religious exemptions that mean faith schools can turn yeah. people away because the children are of the wrong religion or the parents aren't sufficiently religious enough mm. in that they don't go to church so it just undermines the, you know some of the, the the core values that we should have yes. as a nation and we do claim to have as a nation but uh, the religious gap suggests otherwise and this is a, this is very similar to an argument that i often make which is that having a monarchy compromises our claim to be democracy and it in a very real sense it compromises our commitment to democracy because we're always having to make room for a hereditary head of state and so certainly debates around reforming of the lords is is often being influenced by people not wanting to leave the monarch stranded as the the only undemocratic 
position within the country, which is, you know, that was almost a quote from a <laughs> from a bishop, I think, or from a, a lord back when they were discussing all this. But um, I was, I've just recently done a video uh, responding to Stephen Fry's comments on the monarchy because uh, he quite likes the monarchy, but he is famously atheist. But in one of the interviews I was watching, he said that he wouldn't necessarily support a secular state. I don't know whether you've had any interaction with him, but uh, because he he worries that uh, a secular state would allow religion to flourish. I mean, is that? I mean, using America as the example. I mean, is that a, a credible argument? I mean, do you think there's any any truth in that? Well, the I, I suppose the key. It's one of the key arguments, I suppose, that is used against disestablishment. I think the arguments that are generally used are uh, having the Church of England established provides a place for all faiths in society, and having a fairly benign Church of England at the top keeps us moderate and it, um, in our beliefs, and it prevents the fundamentalist religions from having too much sway. Um, but to me, that's the job of secularism. That's why we need secularism. We don't uh, pick a religion and say this is the main religion because the other ones can't be trusted. We, I think if you have secularism, that means we, we, we've carefully thought about the role of religion in public life and the need for separation of religion from the state. And so that for me is the job of the secularism, not the Church of England. Um, and of course, the other argument um, is one that perhaps Stephen Fry might be uh, sympathetic to as well is the argument from tradition, which, as we know, isn't really an argument at all. It's a, the absence of an argument. But uh, but I think that is one of the strongest arguments, nevertheless, uh, for retainment of the uh, the established church. Mm. And I, I mean, so much of this is familiar to me. That I mean, I think that this lack of trust in in people is fundamental to supporting the monarchy as well is and the house of lords it's like well you know if you do that who's going to be elected you know who you're going to get what are we going to do you know how's it all going to turn out as if somehow we can't simply govern ourselves as a free <laughs> a free and equal uh, society with no one sort of none of these big ancient institutions sort of looming over us and uh, making sure we don't go too far in the wrong direction it seems quite an odd paternalistic set up with the monarchy the lords and the church all sort of playing a role in that it does seem to be a lack of confidence but i think it's mm. also maybe something to do with a lack of any real sense of who we are as a nation without mm. any of these things because I, I think it's damaging for our psyche as a nation i think all this symbolism of um the uh, you know a family being the head of a democracy it, it's it's it cements privilege at the very top of state and society. And I think it's harmful to our mindset as a country. It's hard to be a nation that extols the virtues of equality and democracy when fundamentally that's not who you are. So, you know, I think it, I think it would be better for us if we could live true to our values, um, mm. be more authentic, believe in our principles in equality and democracy, mm. and reflect that in our constitution. That's not what we're doing at the moment. Um, I think we're being inauthentic. I think we're living in a bit of a lie in many respects. And mm. I don't think that's a good place to be for a nation. So, you know, perhaps post-Brexit, it's time to work out who we are, what we are, what we want to be. And my view is that we should be a secular democracy and a republic. Indeed. And I, I think that's, um, that's absolutely right. And I think that, you know, this, this privilege is what the monarchy, the lords, and established church is all about. It's privileging a particular set of uh, ideas which have been largely abandoned by people. You know, we are Democrats. We are largely secular in our outlook. Um, 
you know, we, we're not aristocrats and we don't bow to people anymore. So it, it's completely out of place in the modern world. I, looking ahead again, I mean, do you, do you think that there are going to be big successes in the future? I mean, what do you think are the chances? I said to you before we came, uh, started the conversation that in uh, many years ago, Sir Humphrey Appleby on Yes Prime Minister suggested that uh, while the Queen is inseparable from the Church of England, uh, God is an optional extra. <laughs> I don't know which is easier to get out of the Constitution, Queen or God. I mean, do you think that you're going to succeed over the next 10, 20 years? Um, well, I, I, I don't think there's any need for us to get into a, a competitive tete-a-tete about who's got the hardest challenge. Um, I think the truth is that our fortunes are wrapped up together, um, as are the fortunes of the monarchy and the established church. I think the, the fortunes of the National Secular Society and the Rep- and Republic probably do go hand in hand. When one goes, they probably both go. And for me, it's the sooner the better. But mm. I would say Charles coming to the throne is potentially a game changer for the Republican movement. And it's also an opportune moment to press the case for separation of church and state too. It'll be very interesting to see how the coronation is received in modern Britain. Um, Despite the Queen's best efforts to uh, maintain and preserve Christianity, as is her role, um, I think one of the most significant changes that we've seen since the Queen was crowned back in 1953 is the sharp decline in adherence to Christianity and the secularisation of the UK. The religious landscape in Britain is very different now to when the previous coronation took place in 1953. And I do wonder how it will be received in a largely Mm. majority, non-religious, multi-faith country because it's it's a very Anglican ceremony. King Charles will be uh, crowned and anointed by the Archbishop of Canterbury in Westminster Abbey. Uh, Charles will take the Ascension Oath in which he'll swear to maintain and preserve the settlement of the Church of England and the doctrine, the worship, the discipline of the church. Um, You know, the, the UK is the only democracy, I think, to have such an explicitly Christian ceremony for its head of state. Mm. It's um, ascension. Um, and, and I think, you know, clearly the next coronation will be a, a sort of scaled down affair. I think fewer people will be there. There won't be so much in the way of street processions and the rest of it. Mm. It'll certainly be more multi-faith. We'll have the usual array of faith leaders and maybe even a humanist will be there to give it a multi-faith feel. But nevertheless, um, all the religious rituals will, I, w- I would imagine, be quite jarring and alienating to the British yes. public. But really, as a, as a whole, doesn't go to church. They're not interested in church services anymore. They're largely not Christian. They're predominantly not religious. And I think it will possibly highlight a real disconnect, the sort of disconnect I was talking about earlier, um, between the monarchy, between uh, the position of the Church of England and the British public. And so I think perhaps the next coronation will be the beginning of the end mm. um, of the popularity of the monarchy. Um, I would have thought, um, but yeah, it's at the moment the popularity of the monarchy is very much tied up with the Queen anyway. Yes, um, absolutely. And, and certainly, no yeah. future monarch can expect that level of support. Certainly no. not King Charles. Yeah. Um, and so, without the Queen, I think the whole thing starts to look a little bit more precarious. And there is a lot of indifference towards the monarchy. And I think going back to what you were saying uh, towards the beginning of the uh, conversation, the, uh, our civic ceremonies are wrapped up with the with religion and this is the coronation is you know a civic ceremony on steroids and it's people are going to look at it and think this what this i can't relate to this <laughs> you know this is archaic christian church of england uh ceremony that belongs in uh, in the victorian times and it's nothing to do with me so i think that's going to just push the public and, and the monarchy and the church further apart 
So that's all we've got time for. Thank you very much, Stephen, for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. So thanks again to Stephen Evans. And if you want to find out more about the National Secular Society, and I'd stress it's open to everyone of any religion or none, visit secularism.org.uk. And you can find out more about Republic at republic.org.uk, where you can add your name to our email list, join, donate, and find out how you can get involved with the campaign. You can also find links to Republic's YouTube channel, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram accounts. That's all for me. Bye for now.